the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine, the Dr. Seuss books, and then we're joined by Chloe Sun, the author of a new book called Conspicuous in His Absence. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, Liz, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo for a second day in a row here today. Uh, it is a beautiful, sunny Tuesday afternoon. Yesterday I talked about how I couldn't believe there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And now as I look out the window, still not a cloud in the sky. Uh, and so really excited to be here with you today. Hopefully you're having a great day. We're going to be joined later today by Chloe Sun. She wrote a new book called Conspicuous in His Absence. And then in the second hour, we're going to be joined uh, by our old friend, Jim Dennison. Uh, so you will get to hear some other voices today. But as for hosting, I am by myself today. My old co-host, Ian Simpkins, actually heading down to Tennessee today. It's his moving day. So be praying for him and his family uh, as they start this new adventure today. Uh, but anyway, we're here. We're glad to have you with us. A beautiful day. Although, speaking of weather, I saw on the news today. Next Tuesday, circle that date they are showing right now. It might be 60 degrees here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, starting to feel like spring, starting to feel like we're getting there. Uh, and so not a, not a day too soon. Now that we're in March, uh, nice to look towards the spring. Well, uh, speaking of looking forward and speaking of uh, having some good things, hopefully a light at the end of the tunnel. Wanted to start off again today by talking about the new Johnson and Johnson vaccine for the coronavirus for COVID-19. Uh, because at, the more I read about this, the more excited I do get. This one, this article at the NBC at NBCnews.com just starts this way. J and J vaccine could be a quote game changer. Here's why a third option matters. One doctor said the more options we have, the better. It's really a thing to celebrate. And that's just where I wanted to start today, just with some good news, uh, because so much of the coronavirus, for rightfully so, has been bad news. I feel like through the course of the last year, every time we get on to talk about COVID-19, it's just in a bad news, bad type of way. Uh, but now we've got some good news, right? We've got the Moderna vaccine. We've got the Pfizer vaccine. And now we have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, and it, at NBC News, they simply say, Having two vaccines is good, but three is better, and it could make a major difference in getting the pandemic under control. Uh, this doctor from Northwestern said it could be a total game changer. We've never had to vaccinate our whole population at the same time before, not to mention the rest of the world, the doctor said. So having more vaccines will make it easier. It says the company shipped out, Johnson & Johnson shipped out 4 million doses Monday with 16 million more doses expected by the end of the month. This is just good news. Let's celebrate. I know we're not used to like just taking good news at face value and instead we poke it at this and poke it at that, but let's just take the good news at face value and say, hey, this is something to be excited for that hopefully uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is something that we are getting a handle on, uh, that life will start to get more normal 
And uh, hopefully cross your fingers or uh, knock on wood, whatever it is that you do, that that is the case. Restaurants, churches, schools, businesses, uh, just life in general, that these vaccines will help us get it under control. Uh, the other story that is I, I'm surprised, quite frankly, uh, by by all that's been talked about with this is this. Also at NBC News, six Dr. Seuss books pulled for racist images. Uh, Dr. Seuss Enterprises said on Tuesday, these books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. So let me just read some of this. Uh, six Dr. Seuss books, including and to think what I saw that I saw it on Mulberry Street and if I ran the zoo will stop being published because of racist and insensitive imagery. The business that preserves and protects the author's legacy said on Thursday, on Tuesday, these books portray people in ways that are hurtful. Dr. Seuss Enterprises said uh, in a statement that coincided with the late author and illustrator's birthday. Ceasing sales of these books is only part of our commitment and our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss Enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities and families. The other books affected are uh, McElligott's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. It says the decision to cease publication and sales was made last year after months of discussion. Uh, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, they said, listened and took feedback from our audiences, including teachers, academics, and specialists in the field as part of our review process. We then worked with a panel of experts, including educators, to review our catalog of files. Uh, it's no small thing uh, that Dr. Seuss, did you know this? This is unbelievable. It says he remains popular, earning an estimated $33 million before taxes in 2020, up from just $9.5 million five years ago, the company said. Forbes, in fact, listed him number two on its highest paid dead celebrities of 2020. I'm going to give a pause here and th- let you guess which was number one. Who was number one on the highest paid dead celebrities of 2020 behind uh, just ahead of Dr. Seuss? That being the late pop star Michael Jackson. He was number one. And so this is no small deal uh, that they are coming out and making this. And and why I bring this up is, just, A, I think it's newsworthy uh, and interesting. But B, especially if you go on conservative, uh, not just conservative radio, but more than that, conservative TV, cable news today, uh, what you're going to see is a lot of talk about this. In fact, on Fox News and Newsmax, they said that at one point today, at least, they had talked about Dr. Zeus for triple the amount of time that they had talked about COVID-19. Like this was their story of the day. Uh, And so uh, I thought I would just weigh in a little bit. It says, uh, it's, I am okay with this. People are trying to say, is this cancel culture run amok, right? Is this cancel, is Dr. Seuss being canceled? And I guess what, where I see the difference here, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to argue a both sides here. Cause where I see the difference here is that it's the Dr. Seuss enterprises that's making the change. They are the ones going, okay, we don't feel comfortable with these times have changed, right? We, we just have to acknowledge that Dr. Seuss might have written some stuff or said some stuff that was, uh, that was okay back in his day that times have just changed a little bit. Does not mean he's an overt racist or he needs to be canceled? It's just things are different now. Things that, uh, we expect of our, but whatever else it might be. Uh, things have changed. And so for me, this is not an example of cancel culture simply because it's Dr. Seuss Enterprises that is making this decision. It says they're committed to listening and learning and will continue to review our entire portfolio. 
there's other things that have been uh, called into question uh, from some other children's books authors from back in the day. But I, I don't think this is this is cancel culture. I think we're getting way, way, way too loose with that term right now, because sometimes we just need to make changes and sometimes uh, culture changes and, and you've got to flow with that. And so I, I'm OK with this, especially because it's coming from Dr. Seuss Enterprises. I would highlight, though, that as we do pull things off the shelf, it or from wherever we pull them from, it does highlight them more. And I think it actually has the reverse impact uh, and causes more people to search it out and more people to uh, to read it or to try to buy it. Case in point, these six books, which a couple of weeks ago were selling for under $10 on the Internet, are now selling for over $500. People are trying to get them supply. I uh, can't keep up with demand, especially since they're not going to be published. And so uh, while I'm not sure that this is censorship or cancel culture, I would remind us all that sometimes just trying to do away with things, trying to wipe things away actually has the reverse effect that maybe the better solution is to talk about them and to discuss and to uh, to engage dialogue. So let us know what you think about our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, Dr. Chloe Sun. Uh, she is professor at Logos Evangelical Seminary and the author of a new book entitled Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies in the Song of Songs and Esther. Chloe's going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo again today on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon here in the Chicagoland area. But as we said uh, before, it might be beautiful here, but not as beautiful as it is out in Los Angeles, where our next guest is calling us from. Uh, she is the author of a book that just came out called Consp uh, Conspicuous in His Absence. That is Chloe Sun. Chloe, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Brian. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. It is absolutely our pleasure. Before we jump into this book that, that I find really fascinating, as we said, called Conspicuous in His Absence, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience just so they can get to know you a little bit? Okay. Um, my name is Chloe Sun. I'm originally from China, Hong Kong, and I came to the U.S. for college and became a Christian. And my life just changed um, after that. Mm. And so I've received um, seminary education for a long time, and then I received my PhD degree in the Old Testament. And so I just uh, wrote a book on uh, Song of Psalms and Esther, because those two books did not mention the name of God explicitly, but they're part of the scripture. And so I'm very interested in knowing more about God, especially through these two books. Oh, that's fascinating. Let me, before we get into your book, that was, uh, so you came over for college to the States and then became a Christian once over here. There's got to be a great story there. I would, if you'd be willing to share it, I'd love to hear what that journey was like for you. Well, I was raised in an atheist uh, family, and so wow. I never heard about Jesus or Christianity um, until, well, I, I heard about Jesus, but I, I didn't think he was real. And mm -hmm. so until I came to the stage and I was invited to um, go to church. And so the first time when I stepped into a church, a small group, I heard about the gospel. And then um, as I listened to 
a friend um, mm-hmm. talking about Jesus and sin and all that. Uh, I felt like there were scales coming off from my eyes. Wow. Uh, I wasn't wearing contacts at the time, but I just <laughs> I felt physically I was able to see something which I wasn't able to see. Uh, and so that, that was the spiritual dimension that I wasn't able to um, see before. And on that day, I realized there is a God, and I realized no human being is sinful, and also realized Jesus is the one who died for all of humanity. And if I oh. confess my sins and believed in Him, then I can be restored back to God. I can have a relationship yeah. with God. Amen. That's that's a that's a fascinating story. If, if I could ask you one more question about that. Uh, you said you came from an atheist family and all they thought, mm-hmm. you know, you're going over to the States for college. What, what was your f- uh, family's reaction to you coming to faith here while you're in college? Oh, um, first of all, they were shocked and mm-hmm. they tried to persuade me uh, to think otherwise. Yeah, it, it has been a long struggle trying to communicate yeah. with my parents uh, what it's like to believe in in Jesus, and it was just hard to hard to make it to make sense to them. Yeah, um, yeah. I appreciate you sharing your story. And again, you're a professor of Old Testament uh, and also have written many books, including this new book that we want to talk to you about called Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies in the Song of Songs and Esther. And uh, mm-hmm. again, just kind of on a broad level, why this book? Why did you decide to write around this specific uh, concept here? In both biblical studies and spirituality, we often encounter the presence of God or the subject subject on the presence of God. But in my own personal life and in um, a lot of um, lives of true believers, Christians, they do experience from time to time the feelings of the absence of God, as if mm-hmm. God is not there for them, and there are unanswered prayers, and there's just so much tragedies that it's just hard to explain um, if God is present in in their midst. And so I think that's the reason why I wanted to explore more about Mm -hmm. this topic on the absence of God, because it's it's real. At least the feeling, the feelings is real. Yeah, and I want to get into that feeling there, because I think you're so right. As I'm a pastor, and so often you'll hear from people like, does God even hear my prayers? Is God even there? Is mm-hmm. he real? What, as you've studied this and talked to people, uh, what, is, um, what is that struggle? Or, or to put it another way, when people feel like God is absent, what's the result in people's lives as you've studied this? Well, I haven't done any like in-person research about this topic. Mine is more from the biblical books of the Song of Songs and Esther. But as I talk to people about this topic uh, in relation to their own uh, personal experiences, um, I often get the impression that people want to sense God's presence. But a lot of times they, they don't. And so they will be questioning, is God really there? Is God even loves me? Does God care? 
all those questions uh, related to the struggles in our faith journey, I think they just come out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you examine this, and like you said, you reflect on it through the book of Song of Songs and of Esther, uh, which I find mm-hmm. a fascinating way to do so. What it, You touched on this earlier, but what is it about those two books uh, that make them so helpful when considering this big topic of God's absence? Well, if you read the Bible, um, there are only two books uh, who do not mention uh, the name of God uh, in an explicit mm-hmm. way. And these are the two books, the Song of Songs and Esther. And even though these two books are very different from east to west, uh, north and south, they are mm-hmm. connected theologically by the absence of God's name in them. Yeah. And so I think they contribute and, to... Mm-hmm, go ahead. No, no. I, I, what could we read from that then? Is, you know, I guess people would read Song of Songs and Esther and be like, is God even in these books? How would you answer that question of if God's actually absent or absent or if God is at work in those two Old Testament books? Well, in a lot of other Old Testament books, usually God speaks directly to people, to the mm-hmm. prophets, to the kings, or God uh, reveals his will through the narrator. But in these two books, we see human characters. And in, in the book of Song of Songs specifically, we see the nature of God. We see the garden. We see the love between a man and a woman. And so all these aspects are ways mm. to express God's presence in a subtle way, in an indirect way. And so sometimes yeah. when we try to sense God's presence, it's it's not like we are... We're praying, and then we're expecting God to speak to us uh, clearly. A lot of times it's very subtle. It's, it requires our discernment and uh, like intentional uh, seeking of His presence through nature, through the garden, through His creation, um, yeah. through the loving community, through, through other ways other than an yeah. audible sound of voice. Absolutely. Well, that other voice you hear is Chloe Sun. Uh, She is the author of a new book, just came out last week or two weeks ago, called Conspicuous in His Absence. Uh, Before we jump back into your book, I want to ask, you spend a lot of your academic time uh, in the Old Testament. uh, And as a pastor, what often happens, I'll see, is people go, I, I can't understand the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament have to say to us today? And so they, they essentially become just kind of New Testament Christians, right? I'm going to read about Jesus, and I'm going to read Paul, and, and preachers do that. And, and so I wanted to give you a chance just to speak to that. What would you say to people who are just like, you know what, I can't understand the Old Testament, so I'm just going to kind of ignore it? Mm, that's a very good question. I can actually talk about this for hours. Okay, just uh, well, if you like stories, the Old Testament is all about stories. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a story about God, it's a story about humanity, and how humanity lost that connection with God, and how God uses His way to bring His people back to Him. Mm. So, to to put it simply, it's, it's how I would put it. But then if you want to know more, yeah, as I said, I can talk about hours about this. So basically story, God's story. And we can see ourselves in that story as well. And then hidden in the Old Testament is the promise of the Messiah, which 
will become uh, Jesus that we know in the New Testament. And so if we know the Old Testament, then we can see it's, it's a prequel to the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you uh, hitting on that because I do hear that as a pastor. You'll often hear people like, ah, you know, I was trying to read through the Bible and I got, you know, to Leviticus and I was done mm-hmm. and uh, or that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, and so I do appreciate that. Well, again, the book we're talking about is Conspicuous in His Absence. Uh, studies in the Song of Songs and Esther. If you missed uh, kind of the introduction to the book and kind of Chloe's kind of background of it, uh, I'd encourage you to go listen to the podcast. You can catch up on that. But Chloe, before the break, you said something interesting. Uh, You were talking about, to put words in your mouth, you were talking about how a lot of times uh, our expectation of how God speaks to us isn't actually how it works, but he'll speak to us you know, we read about a still small voice or other things. Mm-hmm. How is it that our expectations, in your opinion, need to be reset a little bit for how God regularly speaks to us even today? In the Bible, God talked to people directly. But then in some books, such as Song of Songs and Esther, we don't see God talking to people. And so God's presence can be revealed differently, especially based on these two books. And a lot of times in our lives, for example, in uh, the book of Esther, um, we don't see people pray, we see people fast, and um, we don't see people trying to seek God's will explicitly, and we don't hear God's voice. So it's a lot of times like a reflection of our own lives here. So I would suggest... um, when we don't hear a clear indication uh, from God about what we need to do, then we will just use the wisdom that he has already given us to discern yeah. the next step. Just like the characters yeah. in the book of Esther, you know, they, they are God's people. And even though we don't see them pray to God and ask God for directions, they act justly for the good of their people. And so I think um, for us, God has given us enough common sense and wisdom to do the next right thing. And we can ask around with other Christians, pastors, and to get more information and to make the right decision for the good of our community. So that's, that's what good. I would say. That's and good. a lot of times, I, I, wisdom resides in God's people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I guess that's a good uh, lead into this other question. I, and this, maybe this question should have been asked earlier. Uh, how would you say to somebody, uh, would you ever say God is actually absent? Because the, you know, the title of the book is Conspicuous mm-hmm. in His Absence, and it's this problem right. of God's absence that you know, challenges of at least us feeling that He's absent. But well, how would you answer the question as to whether God actually ever is absent? I think I would um, respond um, by looking at it through two different perspectives. One perspective is on the nature of God. And the other perspective is on our human's perception of God. Mm-hmm. So um, the nature of God is he is absolutely free to reveal himself or to hide himself from human beings. 
Mm. And God is absolutely transcendent uh, and omniscient. And so um, if there is a world, well, as long as the world exists, God is there because this world is created by God. So that's on God's side, God's nature. He's always there. He's always present. Mm. But then on the human level, sometimes we feel that he is not there. That's entirely on the human perception Mm -hmm. side rather than a reflection of the nature of God. Uh, I don't know if I make that clear. So it's a perceived uh, absence. Yeah, and when we perceive him to be absent, I guess this is the $64,000 question. What should we do? (laughs) What should we do when we perceive God to be silent or hidden in our lives or around us? Um, This is what I would say. First, we have to acknowledge that this is normal. It's it's normal that um, a Christian would feel that sometimes God is absent. Mm-hmm. And then second of all, um, when we feel that God is absent, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us, especially in the New Testament um, time. The cross was in the past. So God's love has already been demonstrated through sending his son to die on the cross. And so um, even though we may sense God's absence, it does not um, define whether God loves us or not, because it's already been proven. Another thing is we can always talk to people, be connected to God's people or to any loving community. And that way we can sense God's love as well, because God is love. Yeah, Chloe, that's a really good word to end on right there. Again, the new book uh, is called Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies in Song of Songs and of Esther. Chloe, before we let you go, uh, where is it? uh, Where can people find your book? Where also could they find you if you're on social media or a website? Go on to point people to wherever they can find you. Okay. My book is on Amazon. And I just found out it's it's uh, the price is lowered than it first appeared last week. <laughs> oh, that's and great! Then, um, <laughs> no, I know it's more affordable now. And then um, <laughs> people can find me through my website. Uh, it's ChloeSunPhD.com. Great. We'll have that up on our Facebook page as well. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Chloe Sun, author of Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies in the Song of Songs, and Esther. Chloe, thanks so much. This was really enjoyable. Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Brian. Absolutely. It is our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. Uh, Glad to be with you and uh, enjoying a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Again, it feels like, not to be a broken record, but it feels like spring has sprung a little bit. I get it. I've lived in the Chicagoland long enough to know uh, that there is probably another snowstorm coming at some point this month. We always get surprised by that mid-March, late-March snowstorm, and we all act like it never happens, and then we get reminded it happens every year. So fully understand that. I've lived in the Chicagoland long enough to know that that is coming. But today, next week, this is starting to feel a little bit like spring. I had baseball on the television, hanging out outside, playing catch with my son. Like, it's just, uh, it feels good. So hopefully it sticks around as I I told you 
uh, in the first segment. Uh, this is this is kind of supposed to get warmer between now and next week. And by next Tuesday, it's supposed to be 60 degrees. So super excited about that. We will take it out here in the Chicagoland area. And eventually, there'll come the time where spring is here for good. But, uh, hey, it feels like it right now. Go enjoy the sun. Enjoy that the snow is melting and we can see the grass. Uh, well, something we like to do here uh, on The Common Good is to say, hey, I've been on Twitter. I saw something on Twitter that interested me. So I want to bring it to you and see what you think. Uh, there was a a Twitter thread. Uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with Twitter, how Twitter works, that's if somebody had a bunch of tweets in a row around one subject that is basically called a Twitter thread. Uh, this Twitter thread was written by somebody by the name of Elizabeth Bruning. And uh, her her profile says Christian mother avid partisan of humankind, usually joking, opinion writer at the New York Times, and then uh, gives her uh, email address. And so this all started because she mentioned a friend of hers that was starting to write online again. And somebody immediately wrote to her and said, huh, wonder why he stopped writing on the Internet for a while. Do you know, Liz? And so she jumped in about this. Again, this is kind of along these ideas of like when somebody makes a mistake, we do away with them. We've call it cancel culture or call it whatever you want. But this idea that uh, that you get kind of one shot and, and sometimes you do things and everybody should turn on you and everybody should turn their back on you. And uh, we've struggled with that, right? Because sometimes there there's consequences and there's things that need to be done. But also what's it mean, especially as Christ followers, to come along somebody, come alongside somebody, to be with somebody, to kind of walk them through and so this is what Elizabeth Bruning said. She said the person was asking about her friend, Freddie. She said, Freddie's my friend. That's a bond, not a lark. She said, Freddie has written about the mistake he made and has taken accountability and apologized. I care about him regardless of his mistakes. I believe in him and I know he's an excellent writer. And then she goes on. And this is what I want to talk about. She said, and let me further add, just for the record, I think the effort to bully intimidate and threaten people until they sever all relationships with people who've made mistakes online, i.e. canceled people, is pathetic and reprehensible. I detest it. It's cruel and stupid. Friendship is real. It's enduring. It's a thick bond. You're not obligated to dispense with friendships as soon as someone becomes a poor accessory to your brand. Friendship is critical. No one, no criminal, no monster should be forced into open air solitary confinement. She continues, I don't believe maintaining friendships with people who've made mistakes is harmful. In fact, I think shunning people into ever narrowing circles where their mistake is an object of constant rumination and perhaps celebration is the worst possible thing we can do for them. Friends can, she says, should act as emissaries between a person who has acted wrongly and in doing so excluded themselves from society and the society itself, which should have some interest in reconciliation, as should the exiled. Friends ease this process. It's a good thing. And she closes this way. But let me say with finality, if you're someone who gets righteously furious at people for continuing to care about, be kind to and worst of all, publicly enjoy their canceled friends. I already know what you think about me, and I don't care. And then she somewhat sarcastically ended with a thanks. That's Elizabeth Bruning, Bruning, B-R-U-E-N-I-G, an opinion writer at the New York Times. Uh, And I think this is, when I read this, I thought this was a really important thread, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. We live in a time of cancel culture. And again, not all cancel culture is wrong. 
uh, in the sense of sometimes take what we've been talking about for months and months and months. When a pastor fails, uh, they should be taken out of the limelight and the the uh, spotlight of ministry. There comes a time, maybe for good, uh, where someone has disqualified themselves from ministry. I I feel okay with the quote unquote canceling of say uh, Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein or whoever else through the years of okay, like we don't need to play all their stuff. What they've done is reprehensible. But here's the question. Uh, should even their friends and family turn their backs on them? Uh, what does it mean it, to be a friend? As a Christ follower, when your friend, say, you, you, you know, somebody that you've been close with, somebody at church, somebody in a small group or whatever, does something sinful, does something even reprehensible, does something that our culture would say cancels them, do you also need to turn your back on them? Do you also need to cancel them? Or is there some call in our lives, especially as that person repents, especially as that person apologizes, especially as that person is looking for a new start? Is there value and is there uh, importance in us as friends and family and community to stand around people uh, and to be there for them. I think this is what Elizabeth Browning is getting at here. Because if we're not careful, if we just buy into the way of culture, we are moving in the direction of just getting in smaller and smaller and smaller pockets. Uh, whether we've we've pushed people out because they don't believe what we do, we've pushed people out because they don't vote like we do, or we push people out because they haven't acted 100% the way that we think people should act. And the question before us is, what does it mean to provide grace and friendship and reconciliation, not just when people are doing well, but when people are at their lowest of lows, even when the lowest of lows has been self-inflicted? What is our role there? I think that's something we need to wrestle with in churches, right? There's times that Paul said, uh, exp- uh, get rid of, expel that, that person, expel that person from the church. Like, we got to be honest about that. But but is there uh, is it like uh, is it just a given that we remove ourselves from relationship, from support, from community with everybody uh, who has done something wrong, or is there a reason here that we have to look at friendship differently? Elizabeth Bruning says friendship is real; it's enduring. It's a thick bond. You're not obligated to dispense with friendships as soon as someone becomes a poor accessory to your brand. Friendship is critical. No one should be forced into open air, solitary confinement. If we believe that God can redeem even bad situations, if we believe that God can bring about transformation, this has nothing to do with consequences. There are consequences for actions. Uh, But will we be willing to stand by our loved ones, stand by our friends, even when people might look at you and go, what are you doing? So that we can be part of maybe a turning of the leaf, a reconciliation, a transformation. Maybe you think I'm wrong about this. I tend to agree here with the loyalty that Elizabeth Bruning is talking about. Uh, Again, there's a place for uh, for consequences. There's a place for boundaries. but. Are we called to cancel everybody who does something that maybe we don't agree with? 
let us know at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page. We'll put that up there and would love to know what you think. Well, coming up next hour, uh, we are going to be joined by Jim Dennison, a friend of the show. Uh, we're excited to have Jim join us again. But before we do that, uh, when we come back from the next break, we're going to talk about the persecuted church and what do we here in the West and in America do uh, and what is our role as we think about our brothers and sisters around the world and their true persecution. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the global persecuted church. And then we're joined by friend of the show, Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Spring is in the air. Baseball season has begun. At least spring training. Spring break is coming soon. Easter's on the horizon. Man, you can tell I got a little bounce in my step. I warned us earlier. I'm sure there's a snowstorm coming in the coming weeks at some point. But right now, as it gets warmer and warmer, uh, we are just going to take it. Well, uh, something that we've tried to do here on The Common Good over the two plus years since we started the show is to try to expand our minds a little bit as as Christ followers, as Christians, because sometimes we can get really local and only talk and think about the Chicagoland. Uh, but often where it stops is we will think about our faith and Christianity uh, kind of just in the West, just really just in the United States. And that's kind of where our conversation ends. Uh, but every now and then what we like to do is to say, no, 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 there's a global church and, and, and with this global church in many corners of the world is dealing with real day to day dangerous persecution. And I, I like to do this for a couple different reasons. One, it's just information and to know what's going on in the world, uh, I think is helpful too. It helps frame what we sometimes like to say in our own culture is persecution. When we're reminded by what other people are going through, I think it helps us to stop talking about needing to wear masks or uh, needing to do X or Y as persecution. I got to be honest, we're not facing much persecution. It doesn't mean the things that are uh, that we run up against here in the States aren't serious, and it doesn't mean that there aren't always uh, that they aren't hard sometimes, uh, but but seeing globally reminds us of the persecution that's going on where people are literally losing their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. And three, it reminds us to pray. Like, when is the last time? And I don't say this as somebody who does this well. When is the last time you've prayed for the persecuted church? where you've looked at these stories and got, gosh, I need to get on my knees and pray for my brothers and sisters in country X or nation Y uh, who are just facing uh, life and death scenarios that are often dictated by whether or not they are followers of Jesus. And, and that reminder reminds us, it gets us to go, okay, I need to be praying. And so that's why I think it's positive. And I am going to touch on one story out of Christianity today, but I wanted to start by doing this. I was at a, a website that we'll often go to called ChristianHeadlines.com, ChristianHeadlines.com. And they have a section on that website called Christian Persecution. 
And here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to read the stories. I'm just going to read the headlines because it gives kind of a rather than just a one off story. It gives a more totality of what's going on out there. Let me just read some of the headlines just from today. These are just from today. Let me just read some headlines. 279 kidnapped Nigerian girls recovered from militants. This one, 317 girls kidnapped from Nigerian boarding school. We're only hoping on divine intervention. Belarusian, Belarusian from Belarus, Belarusian pastor asks for prayer after his church is evicted from its building by the police. Christian mother in Uganda hit with acid for her faith, sources say. Pastor in India beaten for refusing to help pay for tribal rituals. Islamist terrorists, Islamist terrorists in Nigeria threaten to execute pastor. I will not leave Jesus, Indian family forced from village after refusing to renounce Christ. Herdsmen kill church elder, abduct three other Christians. A couple more. Christian leader in Sudan detained, blindfolded, and beaten, sources say. Muslim Fulani kill 11 Christians, wound two in north-central Nigeria, sources say in Nigeria. Two more. Father recovers custody of kidnapped and forcibly converted and married daughter. And finally, another church building set ablaze in the Sudan. So this is just one website, one day that we look at this and we go, gosh, I, I, I was trying to pick which one to read. And finally, I thought to myself, let's just read all the headlines because the totality of it all is that you realize that there are many places not even touched on in those headlines. There are many places in which literally to be a Christ follower is to put your life on the line. And it is to, I heard a story uh, some missionaries told the other day in which they said that somebody they knew converted and they had to flee. And it was their very parents uh, who uh, put a bounty on their head because they had converted to Christianity. My point being that there is real persecution going on worldwide. And so when we that helps frame perspective, when we talk about things like the Equality Act and uh, religious censorship in our nation or whatever else we feel, again, important, important topics. I, this is not done to denigrate their importance, but instead to put some perspective to it about what is going on worldwide and to then to draw us to prayer. Let me pray for these people is what I should be thinking. These people in the Sudan and in Nigeria and in these other places where just by converting and calling on the name of Jesus puts you in the crosshairs of great persecution. At Christianity Today, uh, just yesterday, uh, there was this article. I'm following the cross. Why Shabazz Bati, Bati died defending Asia Bibi. Ten years after Pakistan's highest Christian official was martyred, religious freedom advocates apply his life lessons. And I, I never knew this story. It says, Shabazz is dead. I received the shocking news 10 years ago this week as I stared out my kitchen window into a cold March morning. Shabazz, and I hope I'm saying his name right, B-H-A-T-T-I, Shabazz Bati was known worldwide as a courageous Christian voice for religious freedom in Pakistan. And I knew him as my friend. 
He lived an exemplary life, daily demonstrating heroic love of neighbor, speaking out for victimized religious groups in his home country. The only Christian in the Pakistan prime minister's cabinet, he did not shy away from denouncing persecution. For this, the forces of darkness assassinated him on March the 2nd, 2011, hoping to silence him and terrify others. The question for those of us who remain is how do we carry on his legacy? And it's going to go on and tell the story of Shabazz Bati and what we can learn, what we can learn from how he lived. And this author, I'll end it with this. This author says, I learned from Shabazz about effective advocacy. Be smart. Keep the well-being of the victim in mind. Work in coalition. Be bold and speak out for all. Ground every effort in unshakable faith in God. And this article is really long. I'd encourage you to read it about this uh, pretty impressive guy who was martyred for his faith in Pakistan 10 years ago. But as I read those headlines, let me challenge us one more time. Because we could just forget about that. You know, you can read it and go, okay, what's for dinner tonight? You know, like we can out of sight, out of mind. And so I bring these up to bring them back in mind and to bring them back in sight. And so my prayer is for us that we would pray that it would give us perspective and we'd realize that that there are brothers and sisters around the world whose faith puts them in, in life and death situations. And as we pray for them, be thankful that God is near, God is present, and God is still active. Well, coming up next, excited to be joined by friend of the show, Jim Dennison, founder and president of the Dennison Forum. Jim is going to join us. We're going to talk about all sorts of different things over the next two segments here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon here in the Chicagoland area. We are glad to have you with us, and we are thrilled to be joined by what we like to refer to as an old friend of the show, uh, calling us from Dallas, Texas, I believe. That is Jim Dennison. Jim, how are you doing? Hey, Brian, doing great. So glad to be back on with you today. Thanks for the privilege. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, for people who don't know you, who haven't heard you on the show before, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? You bet. Thanks. We're in Dallas, as you said, or as we like to think of the Chicago hinterland of the frozen winter as a <laughs> couple of weeks ago. Man, we were not ready for what you guys deal with up there. We uh, we don't have snow plows. We don't know how this stuff works. That was really pretty tough. Anyhow, I pastored for a very long time. I've uh, taught philosophy, religion, and apologetics at four seminaries as well. Eleven years ago, started a cultural apologetics ministry. So every day I write an article that goes to about two million, I guess, an audience, total audience, uh, looking at that day's news and biblical context. Our purpose is to help people think biblically about cultural issues so they could use their influence to shape the culture. And then I get to do a lot of media like this. And so when I get to be on with people like you and talk about what's going on in the world, it's really fun for me. Absolutely. Again, we're thrilled to have you on. Uh, I would love to know, you just touched on it, but I haven't talked to anybody actually from Texas, from the Dallas area. What What were the last couple of weeks like for you? Yeah, thanks. It was awful. I mean, we were 70 degrees below two weeks ago what we were last week. So uh, uh, frozen, all 254 counties of Texas under a winter storm alert for the first time. Even today, as we speak, Brian, nearly a million Texans are without clean water. 
even right now. There's still a couple of, I think, several thousand that are without power. Tragically, more than 58 died. Probably mm-hmm. that number will go up as we learn more about this. And so shut the state down, essentially. It was a polar vortex that came all the way down. And I mean, at my house, I was without power for most of a week. My wife and I spent our time in front of the gas fireplace. Wow. That's where we had heat for most of a week. And yeah, power for three or four hours a day, that sort of thing. So it was an unusual experience, to say the Absolutely. least. Absolutely. And Jim, one of the reasons we love to have you on is because you let us just kind of fly to all fields, <laughs> just kind of <laughs> shoot a bunch of questions at you. So uh, I know, I believe we had you on after um, right around the time of uh, the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, but since then, you know, the new president has been inaugurated and now we're kind of getting used to what is a what is a Biden administration? What is President Trump, the Republican Party, whatever else? So I'm going to ask just really broadly, what's been your take of kind of the last two months, just not not just culturally, but for us as Christians, as we as we process kind of where we're at as a country right now? Well, I'd love to start on a positive level yeah. and talk about President Biden's personal life, his personal, uh, very strong Christian commitment, been very active in his Catholic Church over his life, and his desire to work out of that kind of worldview is, I think, something really commendable. Grateful for his personal story. The, I mean, he's been through such tragedy mm-hmm. and has come through that with real courage and something I'm really, really grateful for and glad to be able to endorse. On the negative side, Brian, and this is something that we're talking about in our ministry right now, with the Equality Act coming down the way, with the other legislation coming down the way, for the first time in American history, we're looking at the possibility of a day when we'll have to choose between our faith and our culture, between our faith and our job, between our faith and our finances. It's not a long stretch. And I'm not blaming all this on the president by any means, but it's not a long stretch to see a day when if you're going to be a doctor, you'll be required to perform abortions. Or if you're an adoption agency, you'll be required to adopt the same-sex couples and hospitals be required to do sex change operations without recourse to Religious Freedom Restoration Act and all that's inside that. So I'm not predicting that'll happen, yeah. but that trajectory is out there on a new level. Yeah. And so what do you suggest people do both in churches uh, we've been reading and talking on the show about the Equality Act. And I've been trying to tell people, hey, you know, like like it's it's not the end of the world, but there are some troubling aspects to it. So specifically with the Equality Act, um, you know, what are your fears with it? What's worst case scenario like you already touched on? But where do you think it's all going to shake out? That's a great question. It really goes three directions. The one direction where it is right now would allow no recourse to Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and that's the worst case scenario. Mm. If you got to that place, then you really could see a day when, as we were saying just a moment ago, there'd be no faith recourse as regards a variety of issues. Right now, that won't pass the Senate. That has to get to 60 votes. There are four different ways of looking at trying to get around the filibuster, but none of those seem plausible. So I'm not reading anyone who thinks that the Equality Act as it is now is likely to get into law in this current uh, term. Maybe in two years from now, who knows with the Senate at that point in time, but not now. So you go to the third approach, which is it essentially goes away, which is kind of what happened last time, and they'll pick it back up at some point. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's plausible. I think the middle ground is look at the trajectory that it represents. Look at a trajectory, and this is the big point that I wanted to push off, Brian. Thanks for letting me do this. Understand that for people who are advocating LGBTQ equality, they look at me in the same way as I would look at a racist. If a KKK member wants to claim religious liberty to burn crosses or to refuse to do a interracial marriage, I would see that as bigotry and prejudice that should not be protected by religious exemption. That's how they see me relative to LGBTQ equality mm. or abortion or euthanasia or whatever. So there's a trajectory in the culture we need to learn from that the Equality Act represents, which says that religious freedom may be more in jeopardy than it's ever been. Oh, that's, a, that's a very helpful and 
Tim, uh, you said you have your pastor at a heart. You also apologetics. And so I think you're I would love your opinion on this uh, in the Chicagoland, especially we've dealt with a lot of uh, pastors who have fallen in major ways, major churches. And now we've spent a lot of time talking about the Ravi Zechariah story as well. When you talk about mm-hmm. apologetics uh, without getting into those details, uh, a, I'd love to know mm-hmm. just your thoughts. How did that affect you? But, but what do we need to learn as the church and the evangelical world from these so that maybe we can start moving away from this kind of celebrity Christian culture? Yeah, I'm so glad you put it in those terms because that really is the issue, I think. I'm old enough at 62 to remember a shift that occurred in church life back in the 70s when we started rephrasing pastors from shepherds to ranchers. Mm. And the idea was in the shepherding model, the shepherd knows the sheep, personally connected to the sheep, related to the sheep. Where the sheep go, he goes. The rancher model is where you kind of run this big plantation-looking thing. You look at this big ranch, which is a better phrase than a plantation for sure. <laughs> but you're looking at this large model here, and you don't necessarily know the cows. They don't really know you. You're providing services for a very large kind of enterprise. Well, we've seen that be the shift in pastoral life, where pastors are celebrities, where pastors really run very large corporations, Mm -hmm. and they're seen as CEOs. I'm not sure that's a biblical model. I certainly think large churches can be biblical. I'm not saying that. But the model where they're seen as celebrities, where they're seen as people without accountability, where they're seen as people that are not daily engaged with people who are doing life with them is just inherently dangerous. Whether it's Ravi Zacharias not turning over his personal software and, and devices, or it's maybe some accountability issues with other pastors we could talk about, that's an inherently dangerous place to be. Whether that's me or that's you or that's any of us, that's David and Bathsheba, that's Nathan needing to encounter David. And to me, that's a systemic issue we need to think about. What accountability can we put in place to ask the hard questions of our leaders, knowing that the enemy is going to take them out if he can? Yeah. It's not possible. It's a reality if he can. It's an accountability question. We really need to be having a conversation around. Yeah, that's really good. And with the last minute we have, thankfully, you're going to stay with us for a second segment. But uh, how did we get here in the sense of the way that we've turned Christians into celebrities, right? Jesus could have been the biggest celebrity in the world, and yet he went the opposite direction, right? And we're called to follow him. So how did we even get to this point, do you think, in which we kind of revere these men and women as kind of like celebrities? It's a shift from movement to institution. In Baptist life, anyway, now we measure success by buildings, budgets, and baptisms. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. we ask by the numeric questions the same we would if we were IBM or if we were Xerox. And so we elevate celebrities because the brand equity they bring is essential to attracting people into the institution. Now we want the face. We want the personality. We want the brand equity of the celebrity because it grows the institution. If you pull back from that, we're a movement. We're here to multiply through believers. We're here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, then the leader's no longer a celebrity. He's a shepherd. And that's the difference. That's really good because it's. Uh, I feel like every week at least we're doing this topic on the show and it just keeps rearing its ugly head. So uh, mm-hmm. we're thrilled to be joined by Jim Dennison uh, from the Dennison Forum. Now, Jim, you wrote an article uh, about a holiday that's coming up, touching on St. Patrick's Day and just what the Bible has to say about luck and and just who was St. Patrick. So, A, why did you write this article? But B, what's kind of the premise? What what, what did you kind of learn as you wrote an article about St. Patrick? 
Yeah, thank you. I found him to be a saint for our day. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy that was willing to pay an enormous price in order to be relevant and realistic in sharing the good news of God's love with a very different culture. And as we find ourselves kind of at that place now as believers, when we feel ourselves to be kind of in some cultural opposition, we're at a place where biblical morality feels like it's more questioned or challenged than ever before, we're really missionaries in our culture, maybe on a level we've never been before. And so St. Patrick turns out to be a model, not just because there's a holiday around uh, around March every year, but because of what his story was and how his story relates to our story. So it gave me a chance to explore providence and freedom, divine sovereignty and human agency, but all of that in the context of where we find ourselves as missionaries to our culture. Mm. And so what do you do with, uh, you, you know, it feels like I'm a pastor in the evangelical church. Uh, that's mm-hmm. who, who our station is for uh, primarily. Uh, and usually when you bring up a saint, People are like, nope, that's Catholic. Can't do anything with him, right? Like, I don't want to do anything there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Wondering, uh, what do we do with that? Because I do. I've read about St. Patrick. I'm like, man, there's a lot we can learn from him and a lot we can take. But oftentimes we'll reject it as too Catholic or too whatever. What do you do with that when we deal with saints? That's a great question. I've led more than 30 groups to Israel over the mm-hmm. years, and we always go to the Holy Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Mm-hmm. We're getting ready to go in, which looks unlike anything evangelicals are used to, you know? Mm-hmm. And so before we go in, I tell the people, look, what you're about to see is not what you're used to. Understand, first of all, we're not, the people here are not praying to the saints are praying through the saints. They're not worshiping these icons. They're worshiping what the icons represent. But also understand what you're about to see is how 85% of the Christian world worships. Mm-hmm. And so let's understand here that uh, just because it's not the way I'm used to doing this doesn't mean it's inherently wrong or inherently unbiblical. Let's learn what we can. So even if I'm struggling with the Catholic idea of saints and icons and all of that, the story of Patrick yeah. is really compelling. The way that he would be a missionary to the very people who had enslaved him years earlier and be willing to risk his life for the very people who at one point risked his life is really a story for us of courage. Uh, It's a story of compassion. It's a story of humility, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So the story is compelling, whatever we think about some of the cultural iconography around it. Yeah, and so much of this paper, I would encourage people, we'll put it up at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk from the Denison Forum. Uh, It's a long paper, and it's really good. Uh, But at the end, you talk about God's sovereignty, And you even asked the question, why do you need to trust God's sovereignty today? How would you define God's sovereignty for people who might not be aware of that theological um, truth and and that important concept? And why is God's sovereignty so important to our day-to-day lives? Yeah, thanks for asking that. All through the Bible, God's a king. Jesus begins his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. Revelation says when Jesus comes back, his name will be king of kings and lord of lords, sovereign in the sense of king. Well, we Americans don't know much about kings. We kind of got rid of kings back in our independence and all of that. Uh, When we think of kings today, we think of symbolism like you see in England, all that. Well, in the Bible, God's a king in the sense that he is sovereign or he's ruled or he's Lord or he's master of every minute of every day. If you were in a Henry VIII kingdom, he would be king on Monday, not just Sunday. Mm -hmm. He's king of the whole realm, not just the palace. He's king of all of your stuff, not just the stuff you give him. He's he's got this holistic kingdom. That's how God wants us to see him. I would tell you, Brian, in our culture, tragically, God's not so much a king as he is a hobby. Mm -hmm. We separate Sunday and Monday and spiritual and secular and religion and the real world, and then we wonder why we're where we are. Well, God can only bless what we give him. He can only lead if we'll follow So if we'll make him our king, our sovereign, our master, we position ourselves to be blessed and used by God. Mm. 
How would we know if we're treating God as a hobby versus a king? What would each of those look like in our lives? Great question. God is my king to the degree that I do what he says, whether I want to or not. Hmm. If he's my counselor, I can take his advice or not. If he's my father, quite frankly, I can disobey him, disobey him if I want to. If he's my king, I have to do what he says. So the thing to ask myself is, are there places in my life where I'm in rebellion? Places where I know I'm doing what God doesn't want me to do or not doing what I know he does? Well, those are places where he's not my king. It's every day asking, Lord, show me where you're not king of my life. Could be private, could be public, could be thoughts, could be words, could be attitudes, Mm -hmm. could be actions. Mm -hmm. Show me a place where I'm not aligned with your will. Those are the places he's not king, and those are the places where I'm missing out on his best. That's good. Uh, As I said, one thing I I appreciate about you is you let me shoot to all fields. Let me take a hard right turn and ask you this. Uh, We're hopefully kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel here from the COVID-19 pandemic. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I know your state of Texas and our state of Illinois have handled this very differently. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, churches have been deeply affected over the last year. Uh, And so I'm wondering, what do you believe? What have you learned? And what do you think the church needs to have learned from this last year of this crazy pandemic that none of us were prepared for? What do you think we're going to have learned? And how do you think the church will be different coming out of this? That's a great question. That's exactly the question we should be asking ourselves right now. The bottom line that I would say is I believe God redeems all he allows. Because he's sovereign, he has to allow or cause all that happens. Because he's love, he always wants our best. So he therefore redeems for greater good everything he allows or causes. I'm not saying I'll understand that this side of heaven. I don't understand the technology by which we're having this conversation, you know. (laughs) But But I believe God's in the business of doing that. So I'm asking, okay, God, how have you redeemed this? First thing comes to mind is we're aware of mortality on a new level, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And therefore, we're more willing to reach out to and be open to ministry than maybe we were. I'm thinking of Greg Laurie's church in California that had 8,000 in the online service before the pandemic, 1.2 million on Easter Sunday. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking of the head of the Evangelical Union in Great Britain that said that before the pandemic, 5% went to church. Now they've had 25 or 30% doing online services. Wow. So God's, number one, using it to show us that mortality is real. Number two, he's showing us that the church isn't a building. We can minister online just like we can minister in the campus. Church didn't own buildings until Constantine legalized the church. Yeah. And so let's stop being so building-centric and be people-centric. Mm-hmm. Let's find out ways to minister to people where they are as they are and look at this as an opportunity to break down the walls of the building and make the ministry a movement again. And then third, and we've said this already, let's let's return to pastors as shepherds. Mm. Let's care for the needs of the community. Let's earn the right to preach the gospel by being relevant to the needs of the day. I'll close with this. A good friend of mine says, I have no right to preach the gospel to a hungry person. Mm. Where's their hunger physically that I can meet so I can meet the spiritual hunger? Those are the questions we can be asking today. Jim, it's always good to have you on. That's a good word. As we close, before we let you go, uh, remind people where they can find you, social media, websites, wherever, how people can connect with you and with the Denison Forum. Now, thank you. The website's denisonforum.org, D-E-N-I-S-O-N forum.org. It's where they can get to the daily article. They can see all the social. They can see the video, the podcast, all of that as well. So that's kind of the place to start is at the website itself. Awesome. Well, Jim Denison from the Denison Forum uh, has been gracious enough. He's been a good friend of the show and gracious enough to be on for two segments today. Jim, as always, this was great. Thanks for joining us, friend. Brian, a privilege every time. God bless. You too. And you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for being with us today on this Tuesday afternoon. Something we've been doing here on The Common Good since the pandemic began uh, is that we have been uh, just trying to give you uh, just some some hope, some inspiration, some challenge, uh, just things that can get us thinking as we go about the rest of our evening. And I found this at the Gospel Coalition, written by Clarissa Mole. And, and, and it's important to talk about who this is written by. The article is entitled Four Ways, uh, Four Ra- Ways to Love Someone Blindsided by Loss. Four Ways to Love Someone Blindsided by Loss. The reason it's important to talk about who wrote this, uh, Clarissa Ma, uh, Mole, M-O-L-L, Clarissa Mole is the young widow of author Rob Mole, and the mother of their four children. Rob Mole died tragically. Uh, and you can read the story online. Just Google Rob Mole, M-O-L-L. Uh, Rob Mole died tragically in a rock climbing accident, I believe, uh, and left his wife as a widow. And so she is a widow at a young age. So when somebody who has gone through that sort of tragedy writes an article entitled Four Ways to Love Someone Blindsided by Loss, uh, you kind of listen. This is somebody... Uh, who knows what they're talking about. So let me read a little bit from that. And then we're going to get into the list of how do we love people who have gone through loss? We know many people in COVID-19 who have had, uh, they've lost jobs, uh, they've lost kind of normalcy, but more so we know people who have lost loved ones. Uh, Or when your friend loses their mom to cancer or gets sick themselves, whatever it might be, Sometimes Christians in their best intentions can say things that aren't helpful. And so I want to challenge us at the end here. Just what is helpful? How do we love somebody well who's been blindsided by loss? Let me read from Clarissa Mole. A few days before my husband's funeral, I asked my friend to drive my four children and me to the cemetery. Uh, Rob's death had come as a tragic surprise. As I groped for security in the darkness of acute grief, I determined how to walk through the events of his burial day. I would visit the cemetery and walk to the plot where he would be buried. I'd sit in the sanctuary for the worship service. I'd even wear my new shoes, my new shoes around the house to assure myself I could walk in them without stumbling. As a car pulled up to the cemetery entrance, I asked my friend to kill the engine. I couldn't help remembering all the times we'd driven by as a family on the way to a Saturday hike in the mountains. I never even thought about this cemetery on the hill. We sat in silence, looking through the gate at to the quiet green field and beyond. It was an absolutely beautiful, so tranquil, a perfect resting place for my beloved. I breathed in deeply, relaxed my body to the exhale, and closed my eyes for the moment. As the engine roared to life again, the car pulled forward. I thought to myself, I'm glad I'm here. At least this won't be a surprise. There are many times in the last year and a half when I've wished I could be so intentional and preemptive about my interaction with grief. But grief isn't like planning a road trip. You can't map your route in advance. Instead, the path of sorrow runs helter-skelter through a new landscape shaped by sorrow. Grief is full of surprises. For Christians, these surprises often prove particularly jarring to our spiritual lives. We've accepted the gospel's warning that to take up our cross is to follow Jesus. Uh, We've claimed our willingness to share in his death Uh, that we might also enjoy the fullness of his life. As C.S. Lewis writes in A Grief Observed, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself. 
not to others, and in reality, not imagination. Regardless of this knowledge, when death arrives and grief follows, most of us are surprised. If you serve the church in any capacity, you rub shoulders regularly with people experiencing the confounding nature of loss. Beyond the call to count it all joy, uh, how can we help those whose lives are marked by painful trial of grief? Your congregation can walk well beside those who mourn, accompanying them through grief surprises. Consider these four ways. So I thought that was just a beautiful setup that that grief surprises us, that grief is something that we know is coming, uh, but it doesn't make it easier. And so how do we walk through grief? I think this is a helpful way to end. Clarissa Mole writes first, acknowledge how much grief hurts. To, though, to lose a loved one is to be blindsided by the depth and breadth of the curse. Death and grief bring us face to face with our frailty, our lack of control, our lineage as children of Adam and Eve. Like our ancient ancestors standing at the edge of Eden, we stand in the cemetery and lament what is past. Dust you are and dust you will return. At the grave, past wrongs cannot be righted. Even words of love now fall silent. As we minister to those in pain, our congregations can offer them deep comfort by acknowledging just how deeply the curse cuts into our lives. We live in resurrection reality, but our bodies suffer decay and tragedy befalls and death wreaks havoc. We offer grace to those who grieve when we will lament beside them, when we sit in the pain of their loss and let it hurt as much as it needs to. Number two, uh, accept how long grief lasts. I'm always struck by the obituaries of elderly women that mention loss in infancy. I don't know why it surprises me. I know that grief lasts a lifetime. However, uh, however long it has been since the last shovel full of dirt covered the casket, grief lingers long. Even if you have other children, even if you were married, grief remembers the love and life that used to be. We're often surprised how long grief lasts, and we mistakenly attribute its continuing presence to a lack of faith. So it says, as you walk beside the bereaved in your church, expect to commit for as long as it takes Finding flourishing after loss may take a lifetime. Number three, admit how hard it can be to find companions. When you've lost a loved one, casseroles and frozen meals show up in stacks. Uh, but good, lasting companions can be hard to find. Folks offer platitudes of silence or worse, critique. And grieving people discover to their painful surprise how lonely grief can be. Kind of makes you go, who needs friends? Your congregation's continued presence will offer a welcome surprise to those who find other relationships grow thin after the death of their loved one. I've heard that so many times about how relationships change. And number four, ways to walk people through grief who've been blindsided by loss. Adore Jesus together. Grief cuts to the core of our human brokenness. Whether we've been faithfully following Jesus for many years or have recently turned in trust toward him, Grief exposes the darkness of this world and can shake to the bedrock even the firmest faith. As you walk beside grieving people in your congregation, adore Jesus together. Point your church not only to the empty tomb, but to the nail-scarred hands. Like the friends on the road to Emmaus, grieve and glorify. Grief hurts deeply and lasts long. It can make us feel isolated from God and from our communities. But grief can also be the tie that binds us to one another and anchors us more closely to the gospel. As together your church looks through tears to Jesus, none of this 
will come as a surprise. I thought that was beautiful and a great way to end the show. We all are going to have people around us who grieve. How do we best love them? How do we best walk alongside them? That's Clarissa Mole, who knows this sadly all too well, writing at the Gospel Coalition. We're glad that you joined us today. Uh, Join us again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, we hope that you have a great night. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 